Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Welcome everybody and uh, welcome in particular David, it's lovely to see you. Thank you. Um, the ultimate faceless faction man and faceless man, so a lot to talk about um, <coughs> and you know we all wonder who Bill Shorten is. So I thought we might actually just take it a little bit chronologically, not mm. completely, uh, <coughs> through the wonderful essay, um, which tells us as much I think about the Labor Party as it does about Bill Shorten. I found it really fascinating. Um, but fascinating characters uh, start with Mrs. Shorten, Bill's mother. She, she just sounds like an extraordinary person. Tell us about her. Anne McGrath was a phenomenon. She was the daughter of a poor Irish-Australian family from um, Ballarat. She was the first member of that extended family who'd ever been anywhere near a university. She... Um, she got herself through the university. She helped her brother through the university. Um, she became a lecturer in education at Monash. She got a PhD. In her spare time, when her twin sons were teenagers, she got herself a law degree. Um, she had two faiths, Catholicism and education. And she believed in education. And she believed in merit, she believed in excellence, and she believed in winning. And all of those things she pumped into her two boys. And she worked at, um, at the university as well, didn't she? Yeah. So the boys were, in fact, university brats. When they were little kids, they were, you know, they were tumbling around and playing in the, um, in the corridors of Monash University. Um, while the father, um, who had been an engineer, he was a Brit, a Tyneside boy. He was an engineer on the, a cruise ship and they met on a cruise ship um, when Anne McGrath was 30, um, which at that time was just about it. Um, and, <laughs> and, um, and Robert William Shorten was a very different man entirely, um, and he ran a dry dock on the Yarra, which meant that he lived and worked and socialised and drank and smoked with the Painters and Dockers Union all, all, his, um, all his life. So there were two union traditions met in Bill Shorten. One was the accommodation with the bosses through the painters and dockers and what you had to do to keep those ships going, getting in and out of the dry dock. And the other was um, the Irish trade union movement through his mother's family. And at his mother's funeral, which was only last year, and they were very, very close. At his mother's funeral last year, he told this wonderful story that his, um, his grandfather had wanted to be a communist, but his grandmother hadn't let him. <laughs> well, it, it sounds... Um, and she just comes... Uh, Anne Shorten comes across as just this extraordinary force in the family. I mean, Bill Shorten, you know, was the... Seems like the, shall we say, the strong, silent type who was more or less absent from the, from the boy's life. And, but 
the fact that she got him off the off the cruise ship and into the docks in Melbourne. Mm. Um, Brought him ashore. <laughs> <laughs> um, she she was in, she was incredible, and but one of the things was that she was. Um, much loved by Shorten's school friends. Now, John Roskam was at, was at Xavier, um, and part of the mother's plan for her two boys, there were just two boys, part of the mother's plan was that they would go to a Jesuit school. And, um, they, and so they went to Xavier in Melbourne, and John Roskam was a great friend of Shorten's then, and still is. And um, John remembers what a wonderful woman Bill's mother was. She was welcoming, but she was quite tough with kids. She didn't take any kind of, she was visibly not interested in a kid that wasn't trying. And she was one of those mothers who, when her children said, mum, mum, what's this? She'd turn and say, look it up. <laughs> um, so she was training them hard from the start. And there is always the question, of course, whether the high expectations of such a mother can ever be met. Um, and the, the almost silent person in this story is Bill's twin brother, who has really sort of managed to stay out of the limelight, out of the story. I mean, he's very successful, uh, but uh, was, was he as close to the mother as, as Bill? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. um, it, did it did seem to me terribly important one day, and I, I said to Shorten when we were driving around somewhere, I said, out of the blue, I said, were you first out? And he knew exactly what I meant. It's, it wasn't hard to guess. His father was, was William Robert Shorten and Bill is William and you know, his brother is Robert. Um, it wasn't a really... A, no, I don't, I'm not pretending to be Sherlock Holmes there. Um, but there was an intense rivalry between these two from a very early age. Um, Robert um, is, I am told, taller, darker, better looking, more athletic. Um, <laughs> And just as bright, right? Um, and and Bill was the Bill was the one who did the did the Gilbert and Sullivan, and um, tried tried long distance running and, and um, learnt fencing at one stage, I like and I that don't thing. mean barbed wire. Um, <laughs> and both the boys were given elocution lessons. The mother sent both the boys off for elocution. It was a very very serious. Um, enterprise um, of, of, that, of heading those boys to success. And I'm told, though it's not something I've explored, I'm told um, there is a fairly strong sibling rivalry still. And those of you who saw Bill's completely pathetic attempts to pretend to be able to cook eggplant um, on Annabelle Crabbe's kitchen cabinet will remember that he was talking about his mother's funeral on that show and how he had had been delighted to come across his old um, piano teacher at the funeral, and he had saved up until that time the question, who was the better pupil, himself or his brother? And he was thrilled, he was visibly thrilled to be able to report that it was him. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, so you've mentioned uh, Xavier earlier on, and, uh, and uh, Mrs Shorten was very determined that the boys were going to go to Xavier. For those of us who aren't Melbourne, I mean, there's obviously the Jesuit connection, so talk about that by all means, but also where does Xavier fit in a pecking order in Melbourne, which I suspect is sort of slightly 
more defined than uh, in other cities. It is as respectable as you can get for a Catholic school. <laughs> in Melbourne. Yes, yes. Really, really. Um, um, a very good school, and unlike its Sydney counterpart, Riverview, it was not, it had got over all of that Santa Maria claptrap about the need for boys to go out and confront the zeitgeist in order to save Western civilization from the terrible forces, you know, starting with television, going to the pill and going on from there, um, that are going to destroy the world as we know it. Um, while Riverview was still intensely engaged in all of that stuff, um, Xavier had gone forward to being a really excellent school for um, essentially um, turning out um, surgeons and judges. Um, very few politicians, though, um, though uh, Fisher went to, was, was there. Um, and I'm very interested in the fact that the year that Bill and his brother went into Xavier, Tony Abbott was emerging from Riverview. And that crossover, the, the crossover of time and the different styles of those two schools um, in a sense, you can still see in those men today. Um, and, uh, but the Xavier connection meant another thing that matters enormously for Shorten, is that he is, that he is not, is that, is that he lives in the world of, of the Labour Party, the union movement, but has always also lived in the world of what might be crudely called the bosses as well. And he has never seen, his view of society and his view of his function in society has never been the notion of leading a workers' crusade against the bosses. It is about a world in which those two function together, mm. crucial to his politics. Mm. Um, well, the, uh, the, the dreaded union, uh, sorry, university politics comes up next. Um, I'm fascinated to find that uh, Bill tells you that I chose to go to Monash University because mum was there, um, <laughs> which I think is sort of quite nice, it's loyal. And he would have been familiar with it. Um, yes. But, uh, but it, that was despite all his Xavier friends heading off to the Uni of Melbourne. But then he was straight into the political fray. I mean, university politics always features so heavily in the biographies of politicians. I sometimes wonder, is it just because it's really well documented or you know, is it just so absolutely central to everything they subsequently become? Look, we'll just keep this a secret. Um, <laughs> but you're onto something there. It's fabulously well documented. Um, at Monash University, the newspaper there was Lot's Wife. And um, these days, you can search it electronically. It's not hard to find all of the references to Bill Shorten. And from it emerges a portrait of an you know, a busy beaver in the political world of that university um, who um, is a figure of fun for most of the students involved in politics because most of them were on the left. But of course, Bill has emerged from Xavier and from his own family very much on the right. So there is there's this quite comic um, picture of Shorten at the university where, of course, having gone to Xavier is held against him and, um, and he gets very angry because, you know, he's, you know, he's misquoted and, you know, he's, he's outraged and 
terrible nicknames for him and all of this stuff. Um, but yes, it is very well documented. But the fact of the matter is, that's quite funny, I think, but the fact of the matter is, Shorten's real interest in university politics, unlike Abbott's interest in, and, and Turnbull's interest in university politics, was about recruiting people for the party itself. And he was a member of all kinds of clubs and things at Monash. The point of that was fishing expeditions to find people who he could then bring into the Labour Party branches and build up um, strength in the, in the young Labour movement. That was the point of it. Now, he claims, oh, I hardly had, did anything on campus at all. That's bullshit. Um, <laughs> but but the, the objective from a very, from almost the start was to build up his strength in the bigger party. Mm. And this recruiting aspect of Shorten, I find really fascinating right through the essay because he keeps doing it and he keeps forming all of these amazing alliances and people, he's always falling out with people and, um, in fact, the deputy editor of my newspaper sort of still bears scars and is obsessed about Bill Shorten because of something And that Bill happened. Shorten's quite obsessed about the deputy editor of your <laughs> newspaper. <laughs> That's yeah. Aaron Patrick who wrote, who wrote the book down for. Yes, which had on a white charger. Um, anyway, that's, yeah. that's another story. Uh, but this, recruit, cover. this yeah. re recruitment book. aspect, uh, which keeps coming out because he, he, he recruits people, and there's a quote in the book, uh, in the essay about, you know, you know, everybody talks about recruitment, but you have to go out and do it, and it's really hard. What, I mean, I, I quite like Bill Shorten. He seems like a nice enough chap, but he's not very, well, you know, interesting. Um, and I just, I just don't know. You've come out tonight. You've come all this way. I've flown down from Sydney. Oops, I've given, a, I've given away the, the, the conclusion too early. Um, no, but I mean, why? Okay. How did he, what did he do? What was he promising? When he was young, he had this astonishing capacity to recruit. A face-to-face -face skill which swept men and women off their feet and into the Labour Party. And he, um, to talk to even people who are now no longer his friends from that time, because he dumped a lot of people along the way. Um, and it was creative dumping. I mean, you know, he, he, he went with the ones who were going to be in there longest. He went with the tough ones. He went with his own opponents. You know, when he, when he saw that they were, that they were better. He's always had a very, very shrewd eye for, for well, betrayal, really. Um, but then betrayal drives politics, so we mustn't get too moralising about that, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks. Um, but the reports from these people are that he had an uncanny ability to recruit. As a university student, he recruited for the Labour Party. In his brief legal career at Morris Blackburn, he recruited clients for class actions, including, including um, a bunch of residents of um, suburban Essendon where the world's most polite um, air crash had occurred. A light plane came down in a, in a suburban street of Essendon, um, hurting no one. Um, and Bill was sent out by Morris Blackburn to round up clients, and um, and almost the first almost the first mention of him in the newspapers, and they start early, really early, was uh, Mr. Bill Shorten of Morris Blackburn claiming that he was now running the largest 
um, the largest group action for nervous shock in, <laughs> in the Commonwealth. Um, and then when he went into the union again, he, he, he was a lawyer, he, you know, he had a, a law degree, but he did not go into the unions as uh, Bob Hawke and Richard Miles and various other, um, uh, you know, university trained kids went into the union. He didn't go in as an industrial advocate. He went in as a recruiter and organiser. And again, there's a very, very early quote from The Age where he claims to have recruited 800 members for the AWU in his first year of recruiting. Well, that's quite something. That's even roughly true. That is remarkable. Now, this is his core skill. He's got other, he's got other fundamental skills. He's very, 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 very good at running organisations. He's very good at healing broken organisations. Um, which is a great skill if you're going to lead a party just after it's suffered one of the worst defeats in its history. Um, but the recruiting skill is there. Um, the problem is it doesn't actually work when your objective is to become elected Prime Minister. It doesn't scale up to being a necessarily very effective public campaigning talent. It's a one-on-one -on -one talent which at the time was irresistible. But are you, are you being, if you uh, agree to be recruited by Bill Shorten at university or at the AWU or Morris Blackburn, are you, are you doing that because you want to be close to Bill or are you doing it because you've, he's persuaded you that the Labor Party is a really excellent place to be? And is he doing it because he thinks it's an excellent place to be or is he doing it because it's an, just a sort of genetic thing about wanting to have some numbers behind him? Well, it's genetic about numbers. There's, there's simply an, um, uh, an, in, an incontestable um, passion for the Labor Party. Um, there's no doubt about that, whatever. But as for why people became part of his tribe, that was known as it was the Bill Shorten tribe in those early days, for lots of reasons. He was exciting to be around. He fizzed with ideas. He didn't usually carry these ideas out. He left that to somebody else, which is a... <laughs> characteristic that's um, stayed with him. Um, but, but he fizzed, he was exciting, and he made people, he made those people around him think that there was a contest on here that really mattered. Um, and it was not in, in the kind of, um, you know, um, death of civilization contest that Tony Abbott was running on Sydney University campus, but they, they felt that these contests really mattered. And some of those I spoke to who are, look back on that time with real bitterness say that it turned out that those contests didn't matter because Bill went off with the other side in the end um, because they had won, so he joined them. Mm. Um, and that was shrewd for his career. It was always, always about his career, always from the start. Okay, so he goes off to the AWU, which, you, as you say, is a fairly broken thing, you know, this great historic trade union. Uh, if I can, if I um, a, a very senior trade union figure in Australia described the AWU at that time to me as a shot duck. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? A shot duck. Uh, yeah, it was in bad shape. Yep. Um, what's your encapsulation, I mean, and you talked earlier about how he didn't see that divide between workers and capital or any of those sorts of things, and 
his whole pitch at the Royal Commission was, look, my whole idea was to get, uh, get uh, deals done that, made, that were good for everybody. What's your bottom line assessment of whether he did any, he, whether he'd done wrong on anything, or whether was it just a case that he was doing things in moderation and that he's being attacked for being too moderate? There's a whole school of thought about the AWU that describes the AWU as a boss's union and sees it as a huge machine for selling out the workers and giving them dud conditions and dud wages. Um, in order to um, keep the bosses happy. There's a, there's a whole, you can, you know, there'll be somebody here tonight who will, knows all of that rhetoric and may well give us some of it later on, which is very welcome if it comes. Um, but there's another view, which is that it was a moderate trade union that, that had no, I mean, it wanted to exert power within the Labor Party, but it didn't have any mission whatever about transforming society or transforming capitalism, or God knows, let alone contesting capitalism, none of that at all. It was a deal-by-deal deal union, and which was driven by, by the notion that you, yes, you, you stacked on disputes, but you settled those disputes, and you stuck by the settlements, so that, and that those settlements were not particularly ambitious. So what Shorten had to sell to, to um, employers um, was that he was not the CFMEU, and you could do a deal with you could do a deal with him and the AWU. The union would stick to it. It would be flexible, and everybody would have a better time. It would mean more profit for the employers and decent conditions for the for the men and women working there. Um, now, and and so at the same time, the employers are paying the union for various things like you know studies into back pain. Um, the study into back pain, the union couldn't actually produce it for the Royal Commission. Um, Shorten was certain that it had been done, um, but that it just couldn't be found. Um, and so there's money coming from the employers for various purposes. Now, this, of course, is a conflict of interest. There's no doubt about this. This is a conflict of interest. The question is whether he handled it properly or badly. Um, there's certainly not evidence emerged yet before the Royal Commission, and I'm not suggesting by my emphasis on yet that there may be, but there's certainly nothing at, at this point which would add up to a breach of law in this area. But there's certainly um, a controversial practice, and, and you can tell that because the current leadership of the AWU doesn't do many of the things that Shorten did and has cancelled some of the deals that Shorten made. Um, and certainly some of the deals look dreadful. Um, the deal done for casual employees who go into you know, football grounds and things and clean up um, after, after the grand final and things, um, a company called Clean Event, they do look remarkably dreadful. And those have been cancelled now by the current leadership of the AWU. But there is no evidence before the Royal Commission of impropriety in those deals, just some evidence to suggest he might have done better if he hadn't been simultaneously taking money for the union at the same time that he was negotiating outcomes for the workers. Mind you, I have had more pleasure in the last few months reading articles in the Australian newspaper 
condemning Bill Shorten for not getting sufficiently big penalty rates for his workers <laughs> than almost anything for the last few years. I mean, I just find it irresistibly comic. I sometimes would read those articles two or three times just for the <laughs> here, here is a Murdoch newspaper attacking Bill Shorten for not getting sufficiently tough penalty rates for the men and women of his union. I've loved it. Um, that mood has passed, you'll notice, and those newspapers are once again telling Malcolm Turnbull that he must, for the survival of the Australian economy, do something about penalty rates and make cafes more profitable on Sunday. But you would all understand that. Um, so there's, there are more hearings coming. Um, to my mind, the real damage done to Shorten by the Royal Commission, and I think it was damn good work by the Royal Commission was to uncover the fact that Shorten had failed to declare nearly $60,000 in electoral donations. He simply hadn't done it. Um, and he was sprung by the Royal Commission. But you know, oddly enough, the government has barely mentioned that in their criticisms of Shorten. I wonder why. Have you any idea, Laura, why no. they wouldn't have, you know? Uh, they must have just not been paying attention that day. Not paying yeah, attention yeah, that yeah, day. Yeah. The strangest thing. Yes, donations. We love them. Um, okay, well, speaking of donations, uh, Bill makes it into the uh, machinations of the Victorian right and the Labor Party um, as, he, as he makes his way to Canberra. And I have to say, um, one of the most wonderful things about this essay is uh, there's all this stuff in there that I sort of knew, but I didn't quite ever put together. And the story about the Victorian right is, is so wonderfully told and how awful they are. They really are. They're the most dreadful, dreadful people. Um, and, um, and there's this extraordinary story about um, this is terrible, tragic uh, event where a, a Labor MP suicided and they all immediately were fighting over who was going to get his seat. Um, and but it is interesting. We'll, we'll skip over that just because it was a bit eek. But, uh, but t t talk to us about Victorian Labor and its transformation. I mean, uh, there's, have you, you wouldn't have seen the Wharf Review yet, would you? Well, no. They, like me, had to do a bit of rewriting. Yes. But there's a wonderful <laughs> uh, skit where uh, I think it's Drew Forsyth's doing Barry Jones explaining the factions in the Victorian <gasps> Labor Party, which is hilarious. Um, and, of course, everybody's always joked about the tomato reds and the various shades of pinks and rights and lefts and things. But just tell us what the, the sort of the modus operandi, or, or okay. what, the, what the purpose of the Victorian right has become in the last 20 years? Well, it's not just the right, it's all of them. Sure. Um, and the purpose is to get your bum onto a short stretch of leather, um, if possible, over here in the House of Representatives. But if not, then in the lower or upper house um, of, the, of the Melbourne Parliament, and if not, um, then Deputy Mayor of the Brimbank Council, but something. <laughs> And it's only about office. The suicide matters because that is an unexpected, an unexpected safe seat becomes available. And the factions usually manoeuvre for years, literally years, in anticipation of a sitting member retiring. Um, and they're stacking, they're making their deals, uh, and, and it is a completely um, 
military uh, total war out there in the suburbs of Melbourne involving the unions, involving ethnic groups. Um, uh, but if somebody suddenly dies like that, then, my God, there's uproar because the factions have got to move so fast. And that terrible, unhappy suicide was, was um, uh, provoked, according to the sister of the man who died, by speculation that the man would lose his pre-selection. And that drove him, she said, drove him to error. It is only about pre-selection. There is almost no ideological content left in it. Um, the, the right in Victoria is, as you know, called Labour Unity. There is no unity in them. <laughs> the left is called the Socialist Left, and it has long ago abandoned socialism. <laughs> so these are rough groupings that, that, unlike in other states, we're talking about a sui generis political system of great brutality, where the factions splinter, divide, assemble in a new way, and they, then they give themselves a name. This, is, this will be called um, the Restoration Alliance or something, and it'll last for one set of pre-selections, and then it'll break up again um, as people do their deals. And unlike in most other states, where the faction systems, where the faction system of the Labour Party is settled, um, there is no division of spoils. So in New South Wales, the right runs New South Wales, the left is a strong presence, they share the spoils. They've done, they understand that that is necessary to prevent warfare in the party. But in Victoria, whoever is on top after another one of these kind of um, messings around gets everything. So the, the warfare is vicious, really vicious. I asked Greg Combe, how do these people live with each other? And he said, oh, David, there's no time for broken hearts. Um, <laughs> But the grown-up thing, I think, to observe is that vicious as that system is and wholly non-democratic, it nevertheless feeds a remarkable amount of talent through to the federal parliament. I mean, Bill Shorten is a very talented politician um, and, and the great, the great um, kerfuffle in there, I was very pleased with my editor said that this section of the essay reads, reads like a wildlife documentary. Um, <laughs> the great kerfuffle in there involved the simultaneous delivery to Canberra of um, Mark Dreyfus, Bill Shorten and Richard Miles. And they're three very talented Labour politicians. And despite the blood that flows out of Labour Party headquarters and union headquarters around Melbourne, um, Victoria is the most solidly Labour state in Australia. And if you have survived life in these factions, you know how to do politics. <laughs> you are a skilled political operator. So, on the one hand, the stench is appalling. <laughs> on the other hand, the results are by no means risible. <laughs> Well, that seems like a good p point to leap forward a little bit uh, to one of my... You have to. Yes, because, you know, I'm watching the clock. Um, uh, to one of my little obsessions in life, which is the National Disability Insurance Scheme, yeah. as a reflection of the way Shorten operates in a political sense, and, but also and in terms of making alliances, but also in terms of actually getting outcomes, which is 
you know, if you look at the way people perceive Shorten, he's seen as being, you know, standing for nothing or anything. But yeah. I think the NDIS is a really interesting case study here. Well, <clears throat> big, big men and women who come to Canberra know that when they get here, they're going to be clobbered um, because there are lots of other people in the queue already for leadership and they're not going to look kindly on the, you know, these people coming in. And Shorten, when he got to Canberra in 2007, was clobbered by Rudd, who gave him um, disability as, as Parliamentary Secretary for Disability, or as the joke went round Parliament House, we've, we've fixed him, we've given Bill, Bill's job is looking after people who can't even wipe their own asses. That was the joke. We've fixed him. He was completely humiliated. And for a couple of days was, you know, he's completely, completely shattered. And he's willing to admit that. Um, then he decided, well, he'd do it. And he would do it well. And what he did that I find so fascinating is he approached it as a trade union leader. And he realised that one of the problems, well, the, the fundamental political problem for the disability sector is that each individual disability was lobbying the government for help. So, so spina bifida was lobbying the government. The deaf and the blind were lobbying the government. Autistic lobbying the government. And what he understood was that he had to get everybody together and that there had to be a common set of claims to the government. And that's what he did. But plus, the, the, and this is the shortened touch, he was determined that, that he was determined to involve commerce and business in this and try to find a way to pay what everybody knew would be an enormous bill other than simply by dipping into revenue. And that's where the insurance scheme comes through. Another part of the shortened technique is to find the best people, the best people around on any subject and enrol them in the enterprise of reform. And, and then spruiking, and he is a very effective spruiker on complex issues. But, you know, the question of what he stands for, we'll get to, I know. But when he had the bit between his teeth on this subject, he was immensely effective at making the issue talked about, pushing it towards the centre of the political agenda, and finding ways to reassure people that it was not going to bankrupt the nation if action was taken. And uh, you would, I think, rate what he did as a great success. Mm. Yeah. Mm. No, because nobody thought it, you know, it was, as you say, snigger, snigger. Uh, but Appalling. But he, but he made, it an, he made it an economic issue, not just being nice to uh, poor, disabled people as well. He made it a productivity issue, which, of course, in these, in these days and times, you've, everything's got to be about productivity. So I think it's one of the really interesting insights. Let's keep moving on. Um, one thing, um, we go forward to, um, I'm, I'm skipping over the coup for the moment because people yep. might want to ask about that. Uh, our Labor loses office in 2013 and there's a race for the leadership, which is a bit bizarre because <coughs> in some ways neither of the people who ended up running, i.e. I, uh, Bill and Albo, really sort of, I think in their heart of hearts, really, really wanted to do it, is my sense. But um, and the thing that also surprised me was they had this civilised contest, but 
Shorten was actually, in those head-to-head -head meetings, I thought much more impressive than I expected him to be. He did very well mm. in, those, in those debates. I call this the most civilised contest of the history of the Labor Party. Um, and, and both men know that this is the graveyard shift. To be the leader of the party after a defeat, which they lose office, that man, it's always been men, has never ended up prime minister, never. Um, and so Shorten's view was that he had no choice, having been telling people since he was about 13 that he was going to be prime minister, and by becoming in the shambles of the last year or so of the Gillard-Rudd governments, by becoming acknowledged as the contender in a strange way, which is very difficult to see why it happened, apart from his own self-belief. Um, and therefore, he, it was necessary, though he brought no votes with him, it was necessary for Rudd to have Shorten on his side when Rudd came back to office, because the faceless man of 2010, his face was crucial to a sense of legitimacy in that shambolic year, 2013. So he had no choice. He, he had to go for the leadership. And um, at, at one point, it looked for a little while as though he might be given it unopposed. But, um, but Albanese did, I think, absolutely the right thing of making a true contest of it. Because that contest, instead of the party tearing itself apart behind closed doors, it actually had to go out into the public and discuss what had gone on and discuss the future and persuade people about what direction the party should take. Totally foreign behaviour for the Labour Party, um, but very healthy. So this, this contest happened. I think, I, I, Laura, I reckon Shorten really wanted it. I think he really wanted it. You can't always choose the time. If you want to be the leader, you can't always choose the time when you've got to make your run. Mm. And he saw this as he would never be taken seriously again if he didn't make his run then, mm. after that victory. I mean, all of us can remember the pathetic sight of Peter Costello. Mm. In, you know, the pathetic sight. I can remember watching television and there that morning in 2007 and then Costello appears with his wife and I turned to the journalists around me and said, he's going to resign. And they said, oh, shut up, David. <laughs> Um, that, but Shorten's not that. I mean, he's a fighter. Hmm. He is, um, and uh, I mean, there, there was some bitterness left over after that, after that um, race. But given all of those, oh, and somebody actually very senior in the Labor Party said to me about 12 months ago, the thing you've got to understand about Bill is he actually thinks he's going to win the next election, you know, <laughs> which se seemed sort of hilarious to anybody else. But he does have that self-belief. But why Handy. is it? Very handy yeah. in the leader. Yeah. Why is it that he hasn't, I mean, given the disastrous uh, uh, op opponent, um, why hasn't he been able to cut through better with the public? One of the answers to that is that what he stands for is Labour motherhood. You know, he stands for Labour values. Um, very conservative labour values, education, you know, well-run economy, um, the American alliance. I mean, he's fully paid up for the, in the American alliance. 
Um, all of those completely expected things. Um, another is that um, he has, to the distress of many people like me, made no contest in the two years under Abbott of the outrageous security laws. Um, the, and none of, that really, none of that really computes with him. And this is where the, the, the trade union background really counts. He comes out of you know, the world of banking deals, the world of the practical deal, and issues like metadata or citizenship stripping or, you know, you don't waste political capital on that stuff. Um, now, I find that personally very distressing. And I think also, I think it, 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 has, it has given people the impression that this man is not a fighter because exactly where I think nearly everybody in this room believes a real fight had to be had, no fight was had at all. This is the party that voted for the, for the Border Force Act. This is the party that voted for a piece of legislation which means that the UN can't go in and find out what's happening on Manus and Nauru. This is a party that is not troubled by that, or not, at its, not, at, you know, not by Shorten and the people around him. So there's that sense of him being formless and fuzzy because that hasn't happened. But there's also been the, the very sensible Napoleonic maxim that when your enemy is making a complete mess of things, don't get in his way. <laughs> and, and, and while you say hasn't cut through, and certainly this man is not a charismatic politician, he's not a big man, mm. and, I, and I'm always in the essay asking this question, can he scale up? Um, but on the other hand, month after month after week after week, the polls were telling him and his party that Australia would welcome back Labor under his leadership any day with open arms. And that's not a bad achievement after a defeat as horrible for the party as 2013. <coughs> so while he hadn't become a national hero, um, he was being, in a practical sense, effective. Mm. So the, the big final question I'll ask you before I hand over to the audience is, uh, the whole essay is of course constructed in the context of um, Tony Abbott. Yep who uh, won't go away, but he's, not, uh, he's now not the Prime Minister. Um, I met a man upon the stair. <laughs> uh, so, does, does Bill Shorten have to uh, reposition in a Napoleonic sense because he's now up against uh, Malcolm Turnbull, or has he got any chance, or is, is he now finished? At the top and bottom of the essay, there are a couple of paragraphs which directly address the contest with Abbott. Um, uh, like the Financial Review's power supplement, um, <laughs> events have overtaken us. Uh, I was happy for the essay to continue forward because you know, for, it's 100 pages long and you know, 94, 94, 95 of those pages are not about the contest with Abbott. Mm -hmm. um, I, in the, in the, in the hard copy essay, I call his contest with Abbott a contest of lesser men. Um, and it's clear that the history is that Labor is brought in from opposition um, by big figures, 
really big figures. Um, Whitlam, Hawke, Rudd, and Rudd was born to disappoint, but, but he, was, he was, in all of our imaginations, and in, especially in the public imagination, a huge figure. Um, and Shorten is clearly not, not of that scale. Um, he now has, um, a, a, he now has a, a, an opponent who has the enormous advantage of being liked. Um, now, that's for now, um, and we'll see exactly what it's going to be like. But he has a different, he has a different um, challenge on his hands, and he has to get out there. And indeed, in the last week, he has been getting out there. He's been talking policy. Mm. Um, he's, been, he's been showing a bit of fight. The fight he's been showing over the China Free Trade Agreement, by the way, enormously endears him to the Labor Party and also begins to portray him as somebody who can stand a bit of pressure, which is not something we've seen before. Mm. But the fight is different now. Um, and obviously, he has a much tougher, um, a much tougher uh, uh, challenge. But my God, Laura, if Tony Abbott is going to keep going on 2GB <laughs> and saying it's still my government, I mean, Kevin Rudd at least shut up and did his work, did, his, did the terrible things he did to Julia Gillard sort of off stage. <laughs> Tony Abbott is centre stage telling, telling Malcolm Turnbull that he, Malcolm, is somehow his creature. Um, and this is just diabolical for them, isn't it? Just diabolical. And then there are all the, all the deals that Turnbull had to do um, in order to get the leadership. And then there is the whole issue of, you know, people are going to wake up to the fact that while Turnbull is... Turnbull is on the left socially, but he's not on the left in any other way. And people are going to start realising that Malcolm is actually an immensely rich businessman who sees the world very intelligently. I'm not saying just you know, through a tiny prism, but he does see the world through the prism of international finance and, and a world in which business and finance operates as efficiently as possible. It is not a world that's touch and feely about trade unions or the workers. And we've got to be reminded that there is, you know, I'm, Malcolm can be a bit tedious. Um, <laughs> do you remember boring Malcolm from, from 2009? Um, and we'll, get, we'll be settling down with Malcolm. I'm not sure whether you would agree with me in this, but with this, but the two-party preferred, the change in the two-party preferred um, since Malcolm came is dramatic, is really dramatic. But it only brings them level pegging. Mm -hmm. and, and he's got a lot of cleaning up to do. Um, he's going to have to re redo a whole heap of policy. Malcolm, yes. Mm. So uh, my view is, and of course Shorten is bricked in as Labour leader. Don't listen to this. You know, Barnaby Joyce is an amusing man. <laughs> <laughs> but Barnaby Joyce is much keener about getting rid of the leader of his party <laughs> than, than anybody else is keen to get rid of to get rid of Shorten as the leader of the Labour Party. So he's the contender. Should we stop? Him? We should stop. Okay, um, I'm sure some, somebody has some questions for David. David, uh, you mentioned Greg Combe in passing. Yep. Greg Combe was here earlier in the year addressing his book. 
when asked about the leadership of the, the Labor needs, Party... You need to basically swallow that microphone. Oh. Yeah. When, when asked about the leadership of the Labor Party, Greg Compay spoke uh, favourably about Bill Shorten. Yep. I noticed since then that Greg Combay was there in support in the Royal Commission. Yep. And uh, Greg Combay is a man who had substantial... Uh, he's a, a quiet man, but he's a, one of substantial achievement in the unions and as a minister. Yeah, I just wonder if there's you can elaborate on the relationship between Shorten and <coughs> Combay. Not always happy um, in the unions, especially in their union days. By far from far from happy. Um, but the, the fact that Combe turned up amongst Shorten's lawyers at the Royal Commission was a signal of his absolute support of, of Shorten. Um, and he, as far as I know, is, is completely um, loyal to his party. I mean, Combe at one stage obviously had leadership ambitions. Now, those leadership ambitions proved to be um, impossible. Um, he recognises that. I don't think there's a combat problem there at all. Is there a combat? I wasn't suggesting. No, no but I don't think there's a combat problem. Um, and it was, it was actually, I thought, wow, what an operation. So Shorten spends his day in the witness box going on and on and on and on, <laughs> saying things to Dyson Hayden like, would you like me to explain how <laughs> mushroom sheds work? Um, <laughs> Um, and, and at the end of it, um, coming out to talk to the press on the footpath, at the end of the day, it was Combe, not Shorten, it was Combe. Um, and it was very well done. Mm. It was very well done. Mm. This a question up the back. Ooh. Let me pass the mic. Flo, start with shouting. Okay. No. Yeah. Um, it's coming. <laughs> Hi, um, thanks for your talk. Um, you've given us an insight into the influence our family had on Shorten early and continuing with his mother. Do you have any insights um, about the role of family in his life now as a husband and uh, father, and particularly now that we're seeing quite a prominence of Lucy Turnbull as a spouse and what, yeah, what prominence um, family has for Bill? Isn't Lucy Turnbull scary? <laughs> <laughs> you see, you, you're all, uh, you all recognise it. Those, um, Lucy Turnbull's fantastic, but you know, boy, is she keeping an eye on Malcolm? It's fantastic. <laughs> um, uh, um, look, this is not an essay about his family life, uh, and I've, um, you know, obviously, his first marriage broke down. The second marriage. Um, uh, Tremendously happy, etc. The child and and uh, at the at the Labor Party conference um, at the Labor Party conference in um, Melbourne in July, um, the three children of the of the blended family came up on stage um, and you know ovation from the crowd with very Labor names like Georgette and um, <laughs> things like that and um, and and Shorten's beautiful daughter, who's not a small child, threw herself into Tanya Plibersek's arms. Did you see that? <laughs> Tanya got the kid, and it was, it was lovely. Um, but look, this is not an essay about... about I understand from, from, from his friends that he is completely besotted about being a father. 
and that's a discovery that's come... I mean, he's wanted to be a father for a very long time, but he's besotted by the discovery of fatherhood. Yeah. Um, but that's not really what the essay's about. Mm. Uh, it's often said that Shorten has no convictions. Shortly after he became Labour leader, uh, at a time when Tony Abbott was getting rid of the uh, carbon tax and things were running against climate change supporters, uh, he said, and this was three years before the election, Labor will take an emissions trading scheme to the next election. Yep. Surely that's an example of a person with conviction. I agree. I agree. And, and that's, that is going to be... That is going to be, um, or under Abbott, that was going to be really tough. Under Turnbull, it's going to be much more interesting. There are going to be some fuzzy edges to that dispute. Um, and, and we'll see how it goes. But yes, the commitment to that is, is terrific. Um, I think his commitment to equal marriage is, is terrific as well. And when you say he stands for nothing, he gave it to the Australian Christian lobby in a way that Gillard never had the courage to do, and Rudd, of course, would never have done. Um, but he stood up in front of the Christian lobby and gave it to them about their attitude to gays, IVF, blended families, uh, gay adoption, etc., etc. a wonderful speech. He does stand for things, um, but he's got to stand for a lot more quickly, because how long has he got? Five months? Oh, Do you I think it's got longer than that. I right. Think, yeah, I think, I think. You reckon they'll go to another budget? I think they've got two. Yeah. Right, OK. <laughs> <laughs> There's a division in the press gallery on this book. We're all supposed to think the same. What's going on? Yes, what's, what's happened to groupthink? Ah. <laughs> a gentleman over here. Um, thanks very much for that. Uh, look, before I ask my question, I just want to say on behalf of everyone in Australia, uh, we, we just want to thank you for your ongoing handler role of Gerard Henderson. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was recently in Vienna, in Stefansdom in Vienna, and this very nice couple came up to me and said, I love the way you handle Jared Henderson. <laughs> Please go on. Yeah. Uh, on a more serious uh, note, look, uh, as someone who's thrilled to see uh, Abbott Gone Turnbull uh, come to the fore, I thought you, your point about the China free, free Trade Agreement was very interesting because uh, certainly I could see a situation where almost like no other issue, the free trade agreements could become an area where Malcolm really trips up, is seen as jeopardising Australian sovereignty, and Bill and the Labor Party could actually get real currency in this. I'd just like to hear you uh, a bit more on that. Thanks. Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> um, no, I mean, Abbott came, Abbott came, when Abbott was elected, he gave orders that these free trade agreements were to be signed. And a lot of things that Australia had quite properly been holding back on, um, we gave way on in order that they be signed. Um, and I don't see any, any particular evidence that Malcolm is perturbed by any no, of that. That's not point. I mean that Malcolm uh, could well uh, go into this and it would be the one issue that Bill and the Labor Party could get currency on. I don't, look, I, I don't think so. I mean, you know, every, the, 
We support free trade agreements. Australia loves free trade agreements. We think it's going to you know, rain down wealth upon us. Um, and uh, you know, no, no, I don't think that's going to be. I don't think that's going to be Malcolm's problem. I don't know what it's going to be. I think Tony Abbott. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yep, yep. Um, are you going to ask a question now? Um, another question? Oh, there's one over here. Oh, no, well, there's one just there first. Oh, oh sorry. Yeah. If, if, if the economic prognosticators are correct, and we are in wars of turbulent times, and, um, and this is hypothetical, of course, and Malcolm wins the next election, do you think that Bill has the ability to stay in power in the Labor Party, or would he just be consumed by faction finding? Oh, look, that's... I think I counted five ifs there. Um, well, it is hypothetical, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I got the point. Um, look, it's impossible to tell. I mean, whether he wants to... If he were to lose the, 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 the next election, Everything would depend on how badly he lost. Um, if it were a close-run thing, um, I've no doubt that he would stay on. I mean, it is generally understood that it takes two terms to fight your way back to power, and that's what Tony Abbott was, you know, a perfect lesson in. So, we'll, I think we have to wait and see on that one. The final question over here. Thank you. Um, you said that um, there isn't a, or you, was the effect that there's not a a cigarette paper between the government and the opposition on the issues of uh, border protection. Um, do you believe that that's basically a policy agreement or something else? Is it just pragmatism? In 2001, when, when Shorten was the National Secretary of the AWU, he commissioned a poll of AWU members to see what they thought of Howard's treatment of the Tampa. And he discovered, of course, that they overwhelmingly supported what Howard had done. And he has not been, um, Shorten, Shorten has never been um, willing to spend political capital on behalf of refugees who choose to try to come to Australia by the not entirely unconventional method of boat. Um, and I asked him, you know, how are you going to clear Manus and Nauru? He hasn't got a clue. You know, he talks about regional resettlement. <laughs> but everybody talks about regional resettlement and nobody gets resettled. He hasn't got a clue. And of course, at the national conference, he just changed the party's policy so that Australia will, whoever wins the next election, remain amongst the least civilised nations on earth that actually pushes refugees away. Um, no, don't, have, don't waste your hopes in that area. Do not waste your hopes. I'm going to hand over to John Warhurst. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, thanks David. Um, I think the conversation format is terrific. Uh, it's one of the best things we do in these Meet the Author uh, series. And to have two for one on this, uh, it's not just, not just having two for one, two such uh, prominent commentators, but to see the way they interact so, so effectively. And I'd like to thank you, Laura, for being such an empathetic and probing and good conversationalist. <laughs> um, and I'd like to thank you, David, of course, for 
writing the quarterly essay on, on Bill Shorten. Um, you do so many things very well, um, and that's been on display here tonight and, and in the quarterly essay. And it's great that you'll have, uh, in a couple of months' time, because of the quarterly essay format, another second bite, if you like, just briefly, to say some of the things perhaps you might have wanted to say uh, just in the, last, in the last few weeks. But I think, as, as Laura said, uh, one of the things that David does extremely well is to explain complex issues uh, very clearly the complexities of union politics, the complexities of Victorian Labor politics, and a number of other things, little things that I'd never thought of, like the difference between Riverview and Xavier and <laughs> Jesuit schools and university politics and all, all these sorts of uh, very interesting things. And uh, we're grateful to you for that. Um, but secondly, how well you can bring a room um, to life, I, I think. I mean, reading the quarterly essay is one thing, and it's a great read, and you should all go out and buy it. Um, but those who haven't been here tonight uh, won't realise what a great, engaging performer uh, David Marr is. <laughs> My mother called it showing off. <laughs> Well, whether it's showing off or not, it's perhaps, perhaps something that some of our political leaders uh, should have a little bit, bit more of, and I suppose that, that gets to Bill Shorten. And uh, it's a I thought it was, a f in the quarterly essay and tonight, a, a multi-sided, not unfriendly um, portrait of, of Bill Shorten. And the, the quarterly essay is as much, I suppose, in some way about the bag of snakes that Victorian Labor and the trade union movement seem to, seem to be, uh, and how a character like Bill Shorten rises through that with his talents and, and, and with his convictions, which came, came out uh, tonight as well. And he may not be the most interesting character in the world, but we had a recent Prime Minister for 13 years who was not necessarily the most interesting character in the world, but he had... Uh, other characteristics which maybe led him to win, win an election. I'm not saying that will happen, but I'm one of those who think that, uh, a bit like the tortoise and the hare perhaps, that uh, uh, Malcolm Turnbull is the hare at the moment and is getting incredible, incredible coverage, but maybe, just maybe, uh, the tortoise may just uh, keep, uh, keep on keeping on, which is what Bill Shorten perhaps has been doing uh, for a long time now. Who knows? But over the last six or seven years, we know that a lot of people have made a lot of mistakes about uh, predicting Australian politics, so uh, let's, just, uh, let's just wait and see. I think it's been a great evening, and would you please join me once again in thanking Laura, and in particular, thanking you. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.